which means I wasn't with you last Sunday, but this is the first Sunday since we've been back. So try to figure that one out. But uh, spent a long week this week as well at the hospital with the Atkins family and uh, quite a bit of time there with them. Their services for Kenny will be today. Visitations from 2.30 to 4, funeral services at 4 o'clock this afternoon. So we'd encourage you to be in prayer for them. Be in prayer for me also as I deliver that message and uh, just try to present the gospel there to that family and hope and the idea of redeeming the time that we have uh, for the purpose that we've been given. So I covet your prayers in that. Today we're going to be looking at our camp theme, which was Restored. Uh, they took the three circles this summer and kind of broke that down into four parts. So each of the days that we were at camp, we looked at one of those, but didn't look at it so much uh, from the big overall perspective like we're used to with the three circles. Generally, we start with the idea that in the beginning, God created a perfect world, right? And we look at his design and how his design is broken and the brokenness that we see in the world. But instead, this particular week, we really broke that down individually and began to look at how those things apply to us and specifically our lives and what that design means and what that brokenness means. So we're going to be talking about that today. But before we get into the message, I'm going to ask all of those who are here this morning that were at camp with us, if they would, to come up this morning. And I want you to get an idea of who it was that was there. And then if uh, they have anything they'd like to share about camp, I've asked them to maybe be bold this morning and share just a little bit about what their takeaway was and what they brought with them uh, from camp and home from camp. There were 21 of us throughout the week that were there. We started out with 20. Jonathan, come on up. Kaylee, you come on up too. Um, Jonathan actually came down later in the week and took Stan's place so that Stan and Hunter could come back because of some commitments that they had the first of the week. So 21 of us in total uh, were there throughout the week. We had an amazing speaker, Chris Lovell. Uh, I can tell you a lot more about him. I was familiar with some of his writing and uh, some little things here and there, but I never really got to sit under him as a conference speaker. Um, he was uh, in Germantown Baptist for a number of years while Tiana and I were in that area. So we're familiar with him. But uh, he's an amazing speaker, able to communicate very well and get his point across with all different age levels. And we're excited because we're already booked for the same week next summer. And Chris is going to be back with us again with a new theme. So we're excited to hear about that. But um, I want to give these guys an opportunity. If there's anything that jumped out from camp this week that anybody wants to share, any, anything that these people need to hear uh, I'm going to give you guys a chance to do that just real briefly if you want to. And if not, well, then I've just got to preach longer. So, Anybody? And Stan's already slipped out on us. I knew he would talk, but he's, he's already gone. Okay, so um, I was really thankful for this week at camp because I went and I expected a lot and I got a lot. Because that camp is something that like totally changes my life every time I go. And um, one of the things we looked at on, I think it was the second day, was brokenness. And then the day after that was restoration. And on the brokenness day, I think um, brokenness is something that everybody deals with in different ways. And so um, I learned a lot that day, but restoration was the day that gave me a lot of what I needed because God can take brokenness and make it beautiful. And that's something that I think I really struggle with myself. It's just like knowing that God loves every broken piece of me. And so that was something I got to learn, and I really enjoyed that day. So, yeah. Anybody else? Don't make her be the only one. 
One thing that stood out to me with camp was also the brokenness because it just reminded me how far astray I had gone from coming to church and just different things. Um, Then the restoration really made me realize that even though I had gone so far away that I could still be worthy and commit my life to God. All right. Going once, going twice. All right. Thank you, guys. You can go have a seat. So we're going to dive into this idea of restoration. Now, we'll tell you, we did have three baptisms this morning. Uh, One of those we were talking to before camp already, but even at camp. Uh, I think there were some wheels turning and some pieces still falling into place. Um, I got a phone call yesterday evening from a couple of young ladies who said, you know, um, really have a better understanding of what it really means and what that commitment, which is a word that kept coming up over and over again at camp, really have a better understanding of what that commitment is supposed to be and what that's supposed to look like. And so we got some things that we needed to get nailed down. And so that wasn't the only decision that was made. Um, In fact, if you all were following on Facebook, uh, you'll notice the first night that we said there were 50 to 60, at least 50 to 60 first-time commitments made just in the service that evening. And usually at a camp like this, that's unheard of. Usually it takes a couple of days, usually by about night two or three after a couple of nights of messages and quiet times and private discussions with counselors and some late night meetings and different things, usually you start seeing that night, somewhere around night three of camp, where God really is moving and kids are coming and making decisions and and, uh, we see a lot of spiritual impact being made. But right off the bat this year, just with the opening message and kind of laying the theme out there and talking about this idea of commitment, that altar was flooded that first night. And so it didn't stop. We saw that every evening kids coming and making decisions and surrendering and committing more and really nailing some things down and being certain of some things. It wasn't just kids. We saw adults and leaders who were there, college students who were there with groups and different things making decisions. And they weren't all there at the altar. There were a lot of discussions that were had and decisions that were made uh, individually and back in church group devotion times that we would have each and every evening. So God was doing a lot of things at camp. And I'd ask you to continue to pray for these students who were there because like any camp, And like one of our students even alluded to, you come back from camp and there's kind of that high. You get so much out of it and you learn so much and see so many things. But if we're not careful, we're not careful, we tend to come down. And I know it's hard to believe. It seems like summer's just getting started, but just in a few weeks, these kids will be going back to school. And they'll be involved in all of their practices and their two-a-days and their rehearsals for show choir and band and all of these things that are going on that will be starting in just a couple of weeks it's going to be really easy to get distracted. It's going to be really easy to forget what we're supposed to focus on. It's going to be really easy to not find the time and have the time to do that daily reading and that daily devotion and that daily time with God where he can just speak to us and point us in the way. So be prayed that these commitments and that understanding of what that commitment is will continue and will not be something that fades out, but instead something that will be able to help fan and keep alive and glowing and and hot in these students' lives. And hopefully today, 
as we leave here, some of you guys will have made that kind of decision and will have decided, you know what, my commitment isn't exactly where it needs to be. And this idea of restoration isn't something that I'm seeing every day in my life. But I know how that needs to be done now. And so we're going to look at this idea of restoration. But it starts with understanding design. And like I said, in three circles, generally we start talking about in the beginning God created a perfect world. And we start looking at the design in that world and the way that world was supposed to function and what he intended it to be. But this particular week, we're really challenging the kids to look at God's design in them. And who he created them to be and what they're supposed to be about. And we see even in the beginning, Genesis 1.27, before man was created, God is having this conversation within the trinity of himself. And he says, let us create man, what? In our image. And so that's what he does in 27. So God created man in his own image. Man is supposed to be that image bearer of God in creation. And we see this amazing likeness that we're not always aware of, even there in the beginning stages. When we think of man being created in the image of God, we're not just looking at the form, we're not just looking at appearance, but we're looking at something about the character, about something about the nature of man and who he was created to be. We're beings who are capable of logic and reason. We're beings who are capable of making decisions. We're beings who are given creativity. We're beings who can create you say, you just said that with creativity. No, I mean, procreate. Think about, think about the job description that man was given in the very beginning. It was twofold, right? They were to be fruitful and multiply. Do you, understand, do you see how and understand how that's the likeness of God? God was able to create everything out of nothing. And while we're not perfectly like God, he's created us in his image. There's an aspect of God that's in us in that the job that we were given was to create and fill the earth. So we see that bit of likeness that's there. While God is ultimately the source of life, he put in us the ability to create life. But then the second part of that job description was to be a good steward of the creation that he had created. We were to have dominion over creation. And do you see that likeness of God? Here is God who sits high above all of creation because nothing can truly compare to him. So God sits above all of creation in this throne of preeminence. And he not only creates, but he sustains and he's actively involved with that creation daily. Moment by moment. Sustaining life as we know it. Guiding us. Leading us. And therein is that bit of likeness. He's placed us here to steward. He's placed us to work through. And as far as the rest of creation is concerned, we then become the face of God. We're to bear His image. We're to reflect His character. I know we love our pets and we love creation, but if we're honest, we are the only part of creation that can truly reflect the character, and the nature of God. We're the only ones who can reach out and begin to show that unconditional love that God showed. We're the only ones who can begin to think and reason and make judgments and decisions the way that God makes them. And yet it's just a likeness. It's just a likeness. 
And because he made us like him, he's able to relate to us in a way that he's not able to relate to any of the rest of creation. And we see that even in Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and their eyes are open to their sinfulness, the shame that's there. They hide themselves. What do we see? But it says God comes to walk in the midst of the garden in the cool of the evening. And Adam and Eve hide themselves. But the sense of that phrase, walking in the garden, it, it leads us to believe that this is something that God did regularly. This wasn't a first-time thing. He didn't wait until they sinned to commune with man in a special way. No, he communed with man and had a relationship with man in a very special way, and now sin had messed it up. So we see that we were created in the image and the likeness of God to have a very special relationship with God because we're the only part of creation that can do that. But we're also created with a meaning and a purpose. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This word workmanship refers to this master artisan, this master craftsman, and we've talked about this recently, and the time and the intention that he put in, the attention to every detail that was there in the way that we were created. In Psalm 139, we see it very vividly painted for us, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together. This idea of the one who would set and pay meticulous attention to where every thread, every pull, every knot would be so that the picture would be exactly what he intended it to be in that tapestry. And we see God painstakingly designing us who we are to do those good works that he had planned for us to do before we were ever born. Our desires, our passions, the things that make us happy, the things that burden us, the things that get under our skin, all of those things he's placed there to make us so that we can do the things that he created us to do. That's his design. That's what it's supposed to be. That was the intention. So how much of that design do we see in our lives as we go on in Psalm 139? We kind of get a little litmus test here. He says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. When we begin to look at our lives, and we begin to look for God's design in us, and that likeness of God, that image of him that we're supposed to bear, how precious are his thoughts to us? Do the things that delight him, do the things that he loves, do the things that he's passionate about, delight us? Do they get us riled up? Do they energize us and motivate us? Are the things that are God's heart the things that are ours? Conversely, the things that God detests, the things that God abhors, the things that spark God's wrath and his fury, the things that he hates, are those the things that we hate? Are those the things that we abhor? Are those the things that we distance ourselves from and try to keep out of our lives and avoid? Because if we're bearing his image, if we're becoming like him, that means our mind is also like his mind. Our heart is like his heart. And his thoughts will be precious to us. How is that design in our lives being reflected? How are we doing at bearing that image that we were created to bear? How are we at reflecting his nature in creation?
look around, and if we're honest, we can say we don't do it very well. It's broken. We're, we've got this brokenness that's in us that you heard these students talk about, and we spent some time talking about at camp. Because the design is not there. It's not evident the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes we even forget what that design looks like and the image that we're supposed to be carrying. Romans 5 tells us, therefore, that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And this death isn't just talking about physical death. If you remember the way Satan interacted with Eve, he said, if you eat the fruit, you won't surely die. She's thinking physical death. And whenever Adam and Eve ate, they didn't surely die at that moment, but the process of physical death began. But what happened instantaneously? Spiritual death. Separation from God. And Isaiah tells us our sin has separated between us and our God and our iniquity has made him turn his face from us. So we're separated from him. We're separated from that one whose image that we're supposed to bear. We're separated from that one who is life. We're separated from that one who is truth. And if we look at all of those things and the weight that that puts on us, we see that brokenness in ourselves. It affects not only our relationship with him, but it affects everything about us. It affects the way that we see the world. It affects our perception of everything. It affects the way we see ourselves. And the way we see ourselves affect the way that we do anything for him. One night during church group devotions, I used this illustration with the kids. It's kind of like if you take the mirror that you look at every morning to get yourself ready. And you just whack it a couple times with a hammer. What happens to that glass? It still reflects, doesn't it? But it's now broken and cracked and spidered. And there's all sorts of little pieces. And as we look at ourselves in that mirror, it still reflects. But is it reflecting what we actually look like? Is that what we see? Or do we see a distortion because our mirror is broken? Ladies, how well could you apply your eyeliner in that mirror? You might think it looked great. I might think something totally different when I saw you at work. But you don't get an accurate picture, an accurate reading of what's there. And we think about Satan all the time giving us these lies and these things about ourselves, trying to twist and distort the truth and to keep us from doing those things that we were created to do, to keep us from reflecting the design that we're supposed to reflect. But he doesn't have to try very hard because when we look in the mirror at ourselves, this broken, shattered mirror, we get a distortion of who we are. And he just plays off of those. We see these things like, I'm unlovable. But if we're really tapped into the truth, if we'll listen to the one that we were created in his image, he is truth. And he tells us in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, among other places, that we are loved by God. That despite where we are, where we've been, when we were still sinners, right? What? Christ died for us. There is nowhere we can run. There is nothing that we could do to escape the love of God. No matter how marred, no matter how broken, no matter how distorted the picture is of ourselves, we are loved by God. One of the truths that we tried to get across at camp this week was this. We each have incredible value to God, no matter how we view that value. But that value does not become, come to us because of anything that we've done or who we are. That value is there because of God, of who God created us to be.
See, when God looks at us, He doesn't see us for who we are and the way we're living and what we're doing. When God looks at us, He sees us for that person that He created us to be and those works that He created us to do. That's where our value is. And when we submit ourselves to Him, when we submit ourselves to that design, that value is realized. But that value is always there. That potential is always there, whether we're living for him or not. That value is there. And there is nothing that I can do to change the valuation that God puts on me. That's why when we were still enemies of God, he chased us down and he died for us. It wasn't because we had proved our value. So we're not unlovable. But another distortion that we see and another thing that the enemy takes off on is this idea that I'm not good enough. And the truth of the matter is you never were. You weren't created to be good enough apart from God. He intentionally, as part of his design, created you with everything that you have. So you were just there. But we would have to be dependent on him to accomplish those good works that he created us to do. See, part of the design is dependence. And yet we look at dependence as a weakness. We look at it as a shortcoming. When really what we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10 is that at those moments when I realize that I am weak, in those moments when I realize I am dependent, in those moments when I realize that I cannot do it on my own and I have to turn to Him, that's when we find strength. Because He is the source of strength. And yet when we look at our lives through this fractured mirror, the distortion that we see is that if I can't do it, if I can't do it on my own, if I can't get there, if I can't achieve, if I can't appease everyone, if I can't make everyone happy, if I can't check off all the boxes, if I can't score 100%, then there's something wrong. The truth is, that was always part of the design. With what he's given us, we can only go so far. And we're dependent on him to accomplish the rest. But then we look in that mirror and we see this distortion of, I'm not beautiful. I don't meet the standards that I put for myself. I don't meet the standard that the world has put out there. And we don't realize that they're all false standards. We go back to 1 Samuel. It says God doesn't look at man on the outside, at the outward appearance, the way everyone else does. Instead, what does God look at? He looks at the heart. And then we go to 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, and it says the beauty of a person lies within. It's in this gentle, quiet spirit. That doesn't mean you're meek and laid back. You're the introvert, the wallflower who never says anything. No, think about what it means to have a gentle, quiet spirit. I know some very loud people who are not gentle, quiet people, but they've got a gentle, quiet spirit. Because a gentle, quiet spirit is one who knows how to find security in God, who knows how to find peace in God, who knows how to find comfort in God, so they're not stressing about it. They're not letting the circumstances of the world keep them riled up and anxious and worried about things. Instead, when all the storm rages around them, their hope, their peace, their trust is in God, and their spirit is quiet and gentle. It's people who, even under pressure, don't get bitter They don't get hateful. They don't get ugly. 
They're not lashing out. They're not seeking vengeance on their own. They're not seeking to make their reputation good again. They're leaving those things in God's hands. Trusting that vengeance is his. And he will uphold the faithful. It's people who don't have a clue where the next meal is coming from. Don't know how they're going to pay the mortgage this month. Don't know how they're going to make the insurance payment. Don't know where they're going to find another job. They've been without now for months and no one seems to be biting. The resume doesn't seem to be making it to the top of any stack. And yet they're not anxious and they're not fretting and they're not worrying about it. Because they know who provides for them. See, that's the gentle, quiet spirit that God finds beautiful. That's a true mark of a beautiful saint. But then we look in the mirror and we say, I've got no purpose. There's no meaning in my life. There's no reason for me to be here. I've never accomplished anything. I can't accomplish anything. I've tried to accomplish things. I've always failed. I've always done all of these things. There's no purpose. There's no reason for me being here. I don't see how I'm affecting anyone's life in a positive way. I don't see how I'm having any impact where I'm at. There's nothing that God could do with me. I've tried and I've failed so many times. I've failed him so many times. He's probably washed his hands of me. He's probably decided that there's nothing worth left in my life that I could do. He's put me on a shelf somewhere and I'm just waiting to die and go to heaven now at this point. And yet, what does he say? Philippians 1.6, he will finish the work that he started in us. If there's a work that he began, that means we have a purpose. And if he promises to finish it, that means he's not finished with us yet. Our life still has purpose. No matter how broken the mirror, no matter how tarnished the image. Yet we're broken. We're broken. And finally, we look at that mirror and we say there's no hope. There's no hope. And yet he tells us that no matter what we're facing in this world, no matter how big the struggle, no matter how hot the flame, no matter how deep the ocean, he says these are just light and momentary afflictions. That instead our focus and our hope needs to be on what's waiting for us. We let him carry us through in those moments of weakness. And when we let him will and do in our lives, that as we struggle and he continues to provide in the midst of our struggle, as we struggle forward and struggle forward and struggle forward, there's something greater waiting for us. And no matter how much we think all hope is lost, we're broken, yes. But that image, that likeness is still there. We still have purpose. There's still value. So what did he do? What, what does all this brokenness mean? Well, it meant that there's something in us that's longing. See, we see all of these things. We see all of this brokenness. We see all of these distortions. And what do we do? We try to overcome them. We try to deal with them. We try to solve them. We try to cover them up. We try to mask them. We try to fill the voids. We try anything that we can sometimes just to numb the pain and numb the hurt and numb all of the things that are going on. We don't want to see the brokenness. We quit looking in the mirror. We try to just focus in on that one little piece so that we don't recognize all of the distortions and the brokenness in our lives. Psalm 107 says he satisfies, notice these Adjectives, the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. See, satisfaction, purpose, joy, completeness, fulfillment, all of these things can only be found in him. 
They can only be found in him. And so until we realize that we're separated from him, until we recognize the sin that's caused this brokenness in our life, we never find that fulfillment. We never find that joy. We never find that satisfaction. We never find that purpose. We hear about it. We know it intellectually. Maybe we believe it historically. But until we really commit ourselves to him as the source of what we're looking for, we never find any satisfaction. Because notice what it says. He fills with good things. As he meets the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, notice what he says. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring welling up to eternal life. That's what we're thirsting for. That's what we're craving. That's what we're seeking. And it only comes from him. And we'll keep on and we'll keep on and we'll keep on looking and searching in our brokenness. But how are we going to find anything? Our perception's distorted. Our vision is broken. We don't even know what we're looking for. We've forgotten what that design was supposed to be. We've forgotten what his image is that we're looking toward. It's he who fills that. So he came down and did something about it. This was not the key passage for the week, but it very quickly became one of the key passages as we went through the week of camp. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Notice this, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he do it? By nailing it to the cross. You see, it was his brokenness for our brokenness. He came down and took that separation. He came down and took all of that brokenness. He came and took it all on himself and nailed it to the cross. And by his brokenness, he made a way for our record of debt. Notice what it says. It doesn't say filed away. It doesn't say folded up and forgotten. It doesn't say it's going to be drug out again at a later time. Doesn't say we're still legally obligated to it even though the paper's been lost. It says our debt has been canceled, and notice, with its legal demands. There is no obligation, there are no ties, there's nothing holding us to that penalty of sin any longer. There's nothing keeping us in our brokenness but us. And our unwillingness to turn to him. Look at Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And this became a key for the weak. As we begin to develop this idea of commitment. And many of the realizations that came at camp. Many of the things that students began to see about themselves at camp hinged on this word, repentance. Because this word is not just forgiveness. This word is not just, I'm sorry. This word is not just recognition. This word is not just, I feel bad. Please forgive me and make it go away. This word literally means to turn. 
And I know you've heard that before, but understand what this means, what this really means. It, it means as I'm headed through life, doing things my own way, and I'm lost in my brokenness, and I'm seeing myself with all of the distortions, and I'm not doing anything to reflect this image of God that I was created to bear. And God calls to me in my brokenness, and he opens to my eyes to what's available, to what he's done, to what's possible, to the purpose and the meaning that he has. It's not just a turn to say, oh God, what was that? Okay. And we continue on our way. Repentance in this turn is a continual thing. It's a commitment to put ourselves on this path and follow the way that he's calling. But so many times, so many people have an understanding of what that is have an appreciation for what's there and available. But there's no commitment to it. So we can come and we can spend our whole lives, we can understand that we're broken, we can understand what the decision is that gets us out of our brokenness. We can understand historically what he did. We can understand spiritually what he did. We can understand what he's calling us to. But have we ever committed to it? See, and there's many of us who we're headed down this path doing our own thing and God calls and he opens our eyes to what needs to be done and it sounds great at first and we think we get it. We, we see all that's available. We see that ultimate restoration. We see heaven in the end. We see love and we see joy and we see peace. And we see a God who sacrificed everything for us, and that sounds amazing. And so we turn. But then we start to realize, if I'm going to follow him, I've got to go through this. And it's going to cost me this, and I'm going to have to sacrifice this. And if, if I'm going this way, then that means I've got to leave the things and the people and the habits and the little pet sins, and the guilty pleasures, and the things that are here. And we get kind of caught in the in-between. I want to follow after him, and I know that's the decision that I need to make, but I'm not ready to let this go, and I want to try to stay here and play both sides of the fence. But guess what you're not doing? You haven't committed to going this way. And many of us find ourselves in this place where we want what he has to offer, especially in eternity. But right now in this world, we want what we've got right here, near and dear. And so we never truly make a commitment. There's never truly any repentance. What it is is we say, God, I've realized what you're telling me about this, and I'm sorry for that and all, and I hate what that does to our relationship, but... That's not repentance. Recognition and repentance are two completely different things. Desire and repentance are two completely different things. The question is, are you committed? Has it made a change in your life? 
Here's another little litmus test. Psalm 63.3. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. Let's take the word life out of there for just a moment. What are the things that are the nearest and dearest to you? The things that are most important and most valuable. Fill them in in that blank. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than my spouse, my kids, my zip code, my job, my retirement, my travel team, my grades, my degree, my certificate, my paycheck, my house, my vacation home. Or to fill in that blank, do you have to flip the sentence? My house is better than your faithful love. My spouse is better than your faithful love. My kids are better than your faithful love. My zip code is better than your faithful love. We've got to flip it. How committed are we? Because you see, it's a complete turn. It's a complete turn. If I'm headed this way, and he's calling me this way, but I only want to turn this far, where am I going to end up? That's not where he called me. If I'm willing to give him, instead of 180 degrees, 175, I want to keep my kids for myself. I can't, I can't let those go into God's hand. Five degrees here doesn't seem like much, but where's five degrees a mile down the road? Two miles down the road. So it's not a turn. It's not a commitment to doing it his way. It's a compromise. And compromise is not the same as commitment. But when we have committed, look at what ends up happening when we find that image of him being restored and his design restored in our lives. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When we've turned to him, when we've made that commitment, when we've said, God, I don't care at this point. I realize what I'm doing. I realize what's at stake. And whatever you want from me, take it. Do it. It's all yours. When we're all in with that commitment, it says that it's God who begins to will and to give us the ability to do in our lives. He changes our priority. He changes our desire. He changes what's important to us. He begins to make our mind like his mind, our heart like his heart. The things that burden him burden us. The thing he delights in is what we delight in. The things that he wants for us are the only things that we want for us. And not only does he begin to work on our will and our want to, but he begins to empower us to make it happen. To give us the ability to step out in faith and do what it is that he's designed us to do. To trust him with it all. And it's a journey. I realize it begins to happen a step at a time. See, God has never called anybody to follow him completely and then have the capacity to understand what completely means. No, he always reveals what completely means a step at a time. Because as I'm completely sold out with this step, and I'm completely sold out with this step, the steps keep getting bigger, and the aspects of our lives that it encompass keep growing and expanding. He knew all along, but he's calling us to follow him completely, step by step. That's commitment. That's what he wants. 
See, every step that I take, I'm convinced that I'm sold out completely. But every time I take a step, he's revealing more and more and more that I haven't sold out to him. The question is, is as I take the next step, will I sell it out all? When I take the next step, will I sell it out all? When I take the next step, will I sell it out all? That's commitment. But it's him who works in us, both to will and to do what it is he's created us to do. The question is, is have we taken that initial step of commitment? And in doing so, have we committed ourselves to taking the next step and the next step and the next step? Restoration also comes into what we're seeking and what we're prioritizing. Matthew 6.33, if we'll seek first his kingdom, then we worry about everything else. In fact, he puts everything else in its place. But it becomes our first priority. It becomes our first thought. Do I have to worry about what I'm going to feed my kids this afternoon? No, because my wife worries about that. No, but is that a concern or is that something I can just forget about? Say, well, God will make food show up on the table. I don't think you could put enough food before my little guy. But no, I seek him first. I seek him first. I make him the priority. His design, his plan is the first thing. And ultimately, that leads us to this ultimate restoration we see in Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He's doing that for us individually when we've committed to him day by day, step by step. But we're looking forward to that day ultimately. When this becomes not just a spiritual but a physical reality. There is no more broken mirror. There are no more distortions. There are no more lies. There isn't another enemy. We see, not through a glass darkly or dimly, but as we're seen. We'll realize the value of his image in us. We'll realize the fruition, ultimately, of the works that he created us to do as we see his kingdom fulfilled. Are you committed to this type of restoration? Because it's a job. It's a job. Anybody who's ever done any type of restoration or remodeling on a house, right? There's three ways that goes. You'd like to do it. And you say you're saving up for it. But that savings always goes to something else and you never get started, right? How many of you all moved into a house at least ten years ago and there are things that you said you were going to do when you moved in that you've never, ever gotten to? Then there's a second kind of restoration. It's the one where you start and didn't realize how much time, money, effort, labor it was going to take or how much expertise you lacked. And that restoration project got started, but it stopped somewhere in the demolition phase, right? And nothing's ever been restored. I won't ask for a show of hands there. But then there's the third type of restoration project, right? It's the one where you calculated the cost. You committed whatever it took. And you've seen it through to the end. 
It might have taken longer than expected. It might have cost you more than you ever imagined. You might have had to go to YouTube and get yourself an education, but you committed to doing it, and you committed to seeing it through. And once it's finished, right, what a joy, what a sense of satisfaction of a fulfillment to sit in there and see that job restored, to see that thing the way you envisioned it. And that's what God's seeking in our lives. We were created with that design in mind, but sin broke it. And we can't see the end through our brokenness. But he knows exactly how it's supposed to be. Will you commit to letting him put the pieces where they're supposed to be? Will you commit to letting him see you through to this ultimate restoration? The thing I asked the kids one night in our church group devotion time was how many people like to work puzzles. Anybody in here like to do jigsaw puzzles? There's a couple little timid hands. It's okay. I'm not going to make fun of you. You know, some people like to sit down and work these elaborate puzzles, thousands and thousands of little pieces. But how do you work them? You've either got a picture sitting in front of you so you know where every piece is supposed to go, right? Or if you're like me and like anyone else who knows anything about working puzzles, what pieces do you start with? The edge. Right? You can always identify the edges. You know, our life isn't that neat. Imagine there was a really mean, cruel jigsaw puzzle maker somewhere. The picture wasn't on the front of the box. It was a surprise puzzle. But when you open it up, you're in for another surprise. This puzzle has no edges. Where do you even begin? You just randomly start plugging pieces in, right? Seeing if they fit. And every once in a while, you'll get a couple that'll go together and look like they fit, right? But how do you know? You don't have a clue what that picture's supposed to look like in the end. Folks, that's our life in brokenness. We scramble, and we try, and we start cramming pieces together, and every once in a while, we get a few that look like they fit, and we think we're on to something. And we realize we can't do it on our own. We're really not getting anywhere. So we turn it over to God. And we let him guide us and show us where every piece goes. How it's all supposed to work together. Some of you are like me. You want to work one section at a time and work it all first and build out from there. But God says, no, let's get this together and let's get this together and let's get this together. And we don't understand how it's all going to fit. But you know what? Who knows what the picture looks like in the end? It's him. And sometimes we've taken those pieces that we in our own effort have tried to put together and we think they work. And he says, hmm. Looks right to you, but that's not at all where they go. We've got to take those apart. We don't want to let go. We don't want to let him start to dismantle the things that we put together, the things that we think we're holding together. But who knows what the picture looks like? It's him. And sometimes it's hard when he calls us to let go of those things. And sometimes it's hard whenever he says to follow him. And sometimes it's hard whenever he says you've got to let go of these things if you're truly going to follow me. But who knows what the picture looks like in the end? So today as we're dismissed, I just want to leave you with this. If you're here this morning, and you realize you've never really been committed, you've had an intellectual understanding, you've had a spiritual desire and want to, but you've never actually been committed, make today the day that you are. I'll be here to talk. Let's get this nailed down. Let's make it 100%.
I don't care if you've been in this church for its entire existence. And everyone here thinks you're already saved. But that does you no good if you're not truly committed. Let's take care of that today. God, we thank you.